Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. From KOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with political cartoonist and author Jeffrey Katurba. I get accused, uh, you know, and this has always happened, where, where I'll get an email back when people actually called people on a regular phone. I'd get voicemail. They would use all kinds of foul language, and you conservative, blah 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 And then the next call, you liberal, blah 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 <laughs> Sometimes over the same cartoon. <laughs> like... Is this a joke? And emails like that too, and uh, people thinking, "Oh, I know, I know who, I know what he is, I know who he is." Well, no, I, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> we talk about his journey, the current state of journalism, and the importance of satire in today's climate. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. local restaurant let's go we munch yes there is munch and talk about the experience what we got where did we go we're still there two boxes of food in lighthearted banter i just jammed the rest of the mediterranean in my mouth meatball based items in a way that is both zany this is gonna be crazy we might end up throwing up and fun my hands are burning hell yeah every episode features an exclusive song where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, we yeah, choose. Yeah. It sounds like haha. Check out Munchie Boys it's on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Jeffrey Katurba, political cartoonist and author of the memoir Inklings. He's been honored by the National Cartoonist Society, National Headliner Awards, and the Great Plains Journalism Awards, as well as having his work appear around the globe in publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and USA Today. Katurba drew political cartoons at the Omaha World Herald for 30 years and now has a Patreon page where you can contribute directly to his new output at patreon.com slash Jeffrey Katurba. We talk about the transition of journalism over that time and the role he sees for satire in today's world. Here is our conversation. It's exciting to have you're, you're sort of like an Omaha institution uh, to be in here. I, you know, it's been years of growing up with your political cartoons and that makes me sound old growing up. Well, you know, it's you, I don't it's know. It's probably true. It's actually. been a part of the you know <laughs> culture for a while, and yeah. uh, I feel like at this point you might be more of an institution than the World Herald. Well, uh, thank you for for those kind comments about me uh it's an you know if you want to talk about that we can I, it's, it's unfortunate because uh you know the world herald was uh, really historically one of truly one of the great newspapers in america top 40 paper and it's uh heartbreaking frankly you know what's what's happened uh, to to the paper to be honest with you and it was heartbreaking what happened to me it was uh, almost a year ago that uh i got the call and uh, after 31 years after something like 12,000 cartoons that my mom clipped, clipped every single one of them. And I uh, got the call and said, you're done. And uh, frankly, no chance to say thank you 
or goodbye to my readers. And that was probably the hardest part about it. And I had about 4,000 emails and messages. I, I still haven't returned all of them, but uh, but I'm still drawing. So that's you know, that's the good thing. Well, yeah, and, you, and you've, you've been able to capture the energy and readership, right? Or like, is readership the word for political cartoons? Yeah, so. I mean, I have patronage too, you know, because uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fairly easy to find. I still appear in 800 newspapers around uh, the world, not just in the World Herald. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I have a page on, on Patreon, and uh, so I have support there, and that keeps the cartoons coming. And frankly, it's been kind of a blessing in disguise because, um, frankly, I can draw what I want, when I want, and uh, my patrons, uh, I don't mean this to be a you know commercial or anything, but my patrons, uh, I post my cartoons immediately the minute they're done, whereas when I was working at the local newspaper, uh, I would sometimes have to wait a day or two because of deadlines. Mm-hmm. And there were times when there was a big breaking story, uh, Afghanistan, of course, and certainly what happened in, in the, with the insurrection in January was a, an ideal example of there were so many stories breaking, you know, and I was drawing on top of that and posting them immediately. And and also posting my rough sketches. There have been some real blessings uh, that have come out of this, and among other things that have, have uh, happened for me uh, in this last year. Well, it seems like a lot of uh, journalists are struggling to figure out how exactly to handle our current political era as well in a yeah. way that I don't know how unique that is or not. It feels like maybe the it's a little trickier to know like what words to use like the insurrection yeah. for example I, do we call it an insurrection I, I know and in fact maybe you saw me when i was searching for the word i i was think was thinking was that is that official now is that like a wikipedia like i feel like there's probably a, a, a wikipedia entry that says insurrection so but is that officially it there are those who would say that it that it wasn't i, I think in my career at least it's it's changed dramatically from my early days of cartooning uh, for my parents, drawing cartoons in a little homemade newspaper growing up in, in South Omaha, to drawing cartoons for the Omaha South High paper, to drawing cartoons at the student paper at UNO, and certainly during my career uh, at the local newspaper, things have changed in, in, in so many, you know, certainly political correctness and sensitivities. Many of those things are actually good, I think. Uh, some are not. I attend cartooning uh, festivals mainly in France, but I have cartoonist friends all over the world. And they think, especially my – I'm of Czech ancestry and I have friends, cartoonist friends in uh, Czech Republic. And they, they think that uh, our freedoms in the United States are are idyllic and perfect. And then they tell me the kind of things that they draw. <laughs> and I say, I can't draw that <laughs> in the United States. I mean, certainly not because of, you know, government censorship or anything like that. I think that's the point they're trying to make. They live in Eastern Europe and are used to, you know, the bad things that have happened uh, in in the past. But so not because of government censorship, but really because of uh, cancel culture and uh, because of uh, sensitivities and political correctness. Again, some of those things are good. And, um, you know, I have shifted some of the things I've drawn over the years because of that. But I do think that journalists are opinion makers. Editors are squeamish. They've been very squeamish. Uh, they were very squeamish in the last year or two of the last administration, um, knowing that uh, if you r- ran an editorial or a cartoon criticizing the previous president, you would have uh, cancellations right. and dealing with angry people. 
I don't know. It's complicated, I guess. When you kind of bring up, there's this idea. When you say cancel culture, the way that it, people usually take that is it's like left-wing cancel culture for not being PC as opposed to we live in Nebraska. There's a conservative cancel culture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's sort of this the out, outrage is not unique to one party. Exactly. Well, and, but the, then also at the same time, political cartoons seem like they are maybe an excuse to be a little bit more irreverent, to push the edges a little bit more, right? I, in theory and historically, yes. And again, it's still happening in uh, – I mean, I'm friends with cartoonists from Charlie Hebdo, and I certainly don't support the kinds of cartoons – that uh, led to the murders uh, of, of some of those cartoonists, uh, some of them went above and beyond anything I would ever even think of drawing. However, I 100% support their uh, freedom of speech and right to say that. And as we saw after that attack, uh, you know, the people that came out in, in supporting free speech. Uh, so, again, I don't draw those kinds of cartoons. I like to think that I push the limits, but I, you know, and but I also recognize that, um, you know, certainly when I was working for the local paper, uh, you know, I'm from here. I I have uh, Nebraska dirt under my fingernails, I guess. And, you know, you breathe the air and you hear what people are talking about. And so certainly I was either uh, maybe unconsciously channeling those sensibilities and aware of them at least, but aware too that when I pushed the envelope, pushed the limits, that, that I was maybe doing that too. But never, ever, ever, ever for the intention of, of upsetting anyone, never, ever for just trying to get a rise out of anyone. I, I approached my work then and I still do now, although I am f- the gloves are off. <laughs> Again, I'm free to, to really draw whatever I want, but I still – filter my cartoons through sort of my internal editor, but I always, always approach a cartoon uh, first as a journalist and not as a cartoonist. And does this idea hold up? Is it fact-based? Yes, it's opinion, but is it rooted in truth as I perceive it to be from research and reading and listening and talking to people and thinking it through? And that's that's basically my premise even now. But uh, but again, I do think pushing the limits is important. People <laughs> on both sides, and frankly, more from more from uh, the right, it seems in in recent times. And I I got a lot of blowback after my cartoons after the uh, I'm going to call it an insurrection, but a lot of support as well. Well, it's, it's interesting you talk about political cartoons as its own form of journalism that requires a similar kind of diligence as you'd put into any article, right? Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people probably don't see it that way or they don't understand or mm-hmm. they don't think about it. They just think it's a person drawing caricatures for the most part and you put a funny caption, right? So like you had to figure mm-hmm. out how to do that. We'll circle back to this eventually, but were you interested in cartoons and political cartoons growing up as well? Good question. Not political cartoons, uh, cartooning, uh, okay. drawing, art, yeah. creative things, music. Certainly um, grew up in a house uh, filled with music, but uh, no, completely not political cartoons, sort of apolitical. I was interested in the news, uh, but I was more interested in drawing you know, uh, uh, Snoopy and Disney characters, although my, my uncle – uh, was a journalist and uh, a columnist for Scripps Howard and for the Washington Post and was a member of the White House Press Corps when Kennedy was first doing his televised press conferences. And uh, he died uh, in, a, in a plane crash a month after I was born. So I never got to meet him, but I heard all these stories from my dad about my globetrotting journalist uncle who was one of the first journalists to land in the South Pole 
and who interviewed Werner von Braun, the uh, father of the Saturn V rocket that sent uh, humans to the moon. So I was captivated with that part of it. And it wasn't until later that I really started thinking about political cartooning, and, and that would have been in high school and in, and in college. So was he kind of like a looming figure, though, for you as you grew up? Still is. Still is. And his sensibilities, uh, he was an opinion writer, but he wrote with humanity. I just feel like that is lacking in our civil <laughs> – well, there is, you know <laughs> – <laughs> there is civil discourse, but it's it's hard to find when uh, you know when you're looking at Facebook, you know all the shouting. Everybody's like shouting at everybody. Uh, he he had such uh, humanity, and I I try to bring that to my cartooning. You know I don't hate anyone. I didn't hate the last president. I criticized him a lot. I actually complimented him a few times early on. And boy, did I did I uh, catch uh, heck for that. Uh, you know, when he first started out uh, and was inaugurated, I said, okay, in my book, everybody gets a clean slate. And, and sometimes people change. And in my opinion, he did not. And things got worse. And I criticized him. And then, of course, uh, was taken a task uh, for those cartoons criticizing him as well. It's interesting then that this was somebody who influenced you and still looms over you. But you weren't interested in following his footsteps in a more literal sense. You wanted to put your own spin on it through drawing, right, mm-hmm. through cartoons. So, I mean, did, did, was there a point where you thought maybe about going down a more traditional journalistic path? Yeah, I, I, I did think about that. And, in fact, when I was at the local paper, I did uh, occasionally uh, pen an editorial. Uh, I wrote some columns. And, actually, it was my uncle that inspired me when I uh, wrote a, a memoir. Um, you know, there were those who said, well, you're you're not going to do a graphic memoir, and but I I wanted to to write write it, and um, I was sort of stubborn about it. Um, but uh, it had some illustrations in it. But I wanted to to I don't know, prove to myself that I could write a book. But also, um, there is something as an artist. I say this weirdly, uh, ironically, or something that that there's something. More sometimes there's something there's something so powerful about a singular image, you know that whole thing. A picture is worth a thousand words. Conversely, there is something powerful about the images that we bring to something that we read. And there's something powerful about radio. People are listening, and um, they may or may not know what we look like. Uh, They may not know that I'm gesturing with my hands. Um, And it's the same thing. Like I can listen to a sports broadcast. And sometimes it's way cooler than watching it. If, I don't yeah. know if any yeah, of this yeah. is making sense. Well, I'm a radio guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I kind of approached the, the book that way, too, that I wanted to, to create these powerful images. But I wanted the, the – and, it, it, and it's a memoir that was written uh, in the present tense from the point of view of a kid. But I wanted to bring readers into those moments that were very visual, actually – describing as an artist, describing what I was seeing and experiencing, but not uh, imposing my actual images into their into their brains. Yeah. But so it, it still informs your entire approach. Yeah. 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 Well, you know what? You know, that's a great point. And actually, yes, it, that's true. And also even, even music, the visual part of that, because I don't actually, uh, I don't actually read music uh, per se, but I write music and, and perform it. And uh, it's a little bit like synesthesia. You know, I see things in color and I see uh, the shape of, 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 of sounds and of lyrics and the dynamic, uh, visual dynamic in my brain of how a song is progressing. Um, 
So <laughs> when people say, do you have anything written down for the song? It's like, no, it's, <laughs> it's just in my head. And maybe you could do like a Spock, uh, you know, some kind of mind meld thing and pick up on it that way. But. <laughs> well, you, you've been able to figure out how to communicate it enough to people or to create it, right? So it's, it's working out. Maybe. I don't know if I'm communicating right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm imagining all of this. <laughs> no, it's working. It's working. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm talking today with political cartoonist Jeffrey Katerba. When you're growing up, though, you got journalism. Was, and I'm still growing up. You're still okay, but like when you're when you're young and you're kind of figuring out what you want to do, yep. and you're sort of moving in these directions, I feel like journalism must have seemed much more uh, consequential. Whereas mm. now, I don't know. It seems like right now people are so able to create their own bubbles mm. that there's limits to what great journalism can accomplish. Mm. Because I don't like. Well, we're just in different worlds. Man, you, oh man, that is spot on. You know, gosh, I just had a quick memory. My, my aunt, uh, Jean, uh, so this would have been, I, I would like sometimes stay with her. And, and I remember staying with her, uh, maybe during the summer, whenever it was during the Watergate hearings. And I was a little kid. I didn't really fully know what was going on, but, um, you know, something as dry as the Watergate hearings were super captivating. And I and I think that's actually now that you now we we're talking about this. That's sort of I think what you know. I started thinking. Oh, I started drawing. I was a kid, but I started drawing cartoons about Nixon and 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 I don't know, like just the physicality of a newspaper, the thick Sunday heavy newspaper. And then you know the New York Times still has weight to it, but I think there's something about the physical weight of it that lets you know this is serious. And, you know, the local paper, the Sunday paper used to be heavy. I used to carry it as a kid and it felt consequential. And then you would read it and it was filled with actual news and investigative pieces. And not that that still isn't being done by some, you know, terrific people uh, at the paper, but, uh, uh, but it's few and far between, you know, across the country. And like you said, they create their own bubbles and, you know, and then, and then, you know, like I personally believe that all students should be should be required to take a basic journalism 101 class for no other reason to understand the difference between you know fact and fiction and what is liable and all of that stuff to differentiate but even as you know on social media well-intentioned adults sometimes don't understand when something to me it's so clear that this is a fake news story you can figure it out but there are those who who can't and uh, it's really disheartening. <laughs> Do you think that, I mean, can images, political cartoons, can they cut through that in a way that maybe actual traditional print journalism can't? I hope so. Um, I, I'd like to think so. Why, uh, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, we've become such a visual uh, culture. I mean, video is hugely popular. Um, I don't want to say that people don't read anymore because uh, some of us do. However, uh, you know, we're busy, you know, we're, we're overwhelmed. And looking at a cartoon, on average, I think they've done studies on average. It's, uh, I think the average reader spends about seven seconds with a cartoon. So, you know, arguably in seven to ten seconds, you can get this message Whereas not as many people are going to spend time with the thoughtful, you know, in-depth piece. And if you're coming to it with your own bias, you know, or you're, you're skeptical or it's not from a quote-unquote legitimate news source, maybe you're going, to, yeah, you're going to be skeptical of it or, you know, are you reading things? Like I'm a big believer that you read things outside of your bubble, you know, read the opposite if it's a credible source. Mm-hmm. 
and go to original sources um, and st- get out of your comfort zone. But, you know, a lot of people, some people don't probably do that. Well, it's a, that's a lot of pressure to put on your image then because you've got <laughs> you to do a lot in seven seconds for somebody who's not going to read anything else uh, maybe. <laughs> that's a good – oh, man. Now I'm really freaking out. <laughs> well, right. no, but once again, you figured yeah. it out. You don't need uh, to freak out. No, but, dude, like every time I do it, it's it feels like – it kind of feels like recreating – or creating or discovering something new every time, you know, and I, I discover something new about myself in every cartoon, it, you know, visually maybe like, oh, okay, I'm going to push myself on this visual thing. And especially since I've started drawing on an iPad, um, I'm still learning that. But also with ideas like, um, you know, what is the, you know, what is the, the what, what bare bones thing can I, how, you know, what are the essential elements of this cartoon that I that I need? And you know, and the words are important. It's not just the visual, like, but every word, you know. There's a saying, something about putting, you know, every word on trial for its life. Every word is on trial for its life, and every word has to stand up for itself and demand that it needs to be there. But I go through so many rough sketches and editing over and over and over and over and over again until I get there. And then I'm not even sure if that's the right thing. And so, yeah, so a seven-second, ten-second cartoon can sometimes take hours and uh, on occasion days, you know, if I have a nugget of an idea and I keep kind of letting it kind of uh, stew, brew, I don't know. I think either works. There. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, so when, when you're going back and you're figuring out how to do that, I mean, you have to figure out both what do you want to say. I assume you want to figure out what's the entertaining element Mm-hmm. And then how do you draw it in a way that communicates all of that? So that, those are a lot of overlapping skills you have to be able to do. How, mm-hmm. did, you, how did you get to that point? Uh, practice and failure over <laughs> and over again. And it, it is. It's like being the director of your own film. And, oh, by the way, you're going to be uh, uh, an actor in it and, um, and the cinematographer. And uh, on Patreon, I post uh, my process videos. So then I'm adding music into it and doing some editing with that. Um, but you know, just a lot of late nights and a lot of, uh, uh, I had a passion for it and I drive and it's what I call, I felt called to do. Uh, and I felt that it was, um, you know, I didn't, you know, I thought, yes, this is important for journalism, but I just thought I really just, I want to draw cartoons and I think this is cool to, uh, be able to draw politicians and, um, and so I probably came at it more from, the entertainment uh, side of things, uh, not entertainment. That sounds, uh, I don't like that word for this, but but uh, maybe bring bringing a, a laughter, but also, but also definitely working in how I see things, and you know, and I'm not approaching it from the left or the right necessarily, uh, but more so from how I see the world and how I see truth, capital T. And oh, by the way, folks, maybe. There's a little bit of truth over here on this one side, and maybe there's some truth over on the other side. And you know what? Maybe there's truth in a totally different place you hadn't even thought of. And not that I claim to have the – that I know the truth or anything. I'm just saying it's from my point of view. And I just want to be a part of the conversation. And, hey, have you maybe thought of it this way? That's kind of my thing. You know, the politics part of it, I can't stand politics, and I'm not some insider uh, it's boring. Uh, well, I don't know if it's boring. It's disgusting half the time. But 
I think that makes me a better political cartoonist because I can't stand it. And so I don't have a lot of patience for, um, you know, hypocrisy, shall we say, and lies and uh, stuff that's really offensive. And you're not a cheerleader at the same time. No, no, and no. And there are some cartoonists out there who are predictably always, 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 always on one side or the other. And some of them are friends of mine, but uh, it's hard to it's hard to respect. Anybody who does that journalistically, you know, it's it's not journalism. And I have huge respect for anyone who, um, even though they they're they're known their their political beliefs are, you know, uh, well known um, and ingrained, who will go out on a limb and uh, poke fun at the other side or come at it, you know, from a different point of view. But I kind of feel like that, you know, the civil discourse and critical thinking is is in general lacking. And again, I'm a big fan of uh, you know maybe more of a Buddhist approach, taking the middle path, or just looking at something from a totally different perspective. Yes, to bring a laugh. Hopefully, not all cartoons are meant to be funny, but to get people to think. Do you remember the first ones you were doing that really landed? Hmm. Uh, uh, that's a good. I don't. Hmm. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> okay. That would be tough for me to. I, I mean, I you know, it wasn't, wasn't a huge deal then. You didn't like frame that one. You're like, this uh-huh. is the one. This is the first funny one that also has good commentary. No, it's not like it's not like I owned a restaurant and framed my first dollar. <laughs> I actually don't have any of my work framed. You know, I've got stuff in a box. Some of it I've sold. Uh, like I said, my mom has clipped every every cartoon I've drawn. But uh, no, I don't have. I don't know. Like I was talking to talking to Tom Becca recently. Uh, uh, now on TV doing commentary and, and we were discussing how it's real. You're doing this often every day or multiple times a week. It's, it's to use a baseball term, it's hitting for average. And um, if I can hit a home run once a week and then the rest of the time get on base, even if I take a ball to the head, I'm happy, happy to do it. <laughs> uh, so it's about hitting, you know, batting for, for average. And uh, you know, there've been some that I've been really proud of and some that, um, I probably shouldn't have, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment, I'm drawing something and it didn't, it wasn't clear, um, you know, and I have a weird, I have Tourette syndrome, so my brain works in weird ways and I just kind of think, well, doesn't everybody think weird, strange ways and I take these strange pathways and then I I, I have to kind of pull my back self back into to reality, if that makes any yeah, yeah. sense. Well, so, I mean, I know some people, though, like you, you hit your stride or you find your voice when there's some issue that you care a lot about. Like people would say John Stewart hit his stride during the Bush administration mm-hmm. and the invasion of Iraq mainly. So like for you, there wasn't uh, some kind of moment where you're like, okay, I know how to do this now. I've found my rhythm. I know what I'm doing and people are responding to it. Yeah. Oh, no. You know, so I started at the local paper in 1989 and uh, I was hired on a trial basis and uh, there for 31 years and no one ever said, by the way, you passed the test. Uh, but it was about two years in when I, and at that time I was still drawing six a week, working six days a week. And it was about two years in when I, th- and I was, I had done some local cartoons uh, on the mayor and the governor at the time. And I thought, oh, okay. And, and there I was getting responses. Maybe they were contacting me. Uh, and that was delightful. Then that, you know, it, I don't remember the specifics of any of those cartoons, but um you know, you can draw a cartoon about a national or international figure and they may or may not see it. But if you're drawing the mayor, you know that he or she 
is going to see it and he or she will respond and he or she may like it and frame the original in his or her office or they may call you and be very angry and demand an apology or something like that. Have you had both experiences? Oh, definitely. (laughs) I guess I have with pretty much uh, most politicians. There are a few who uh, have been very, very thin-skinned and are offended by everything. And there have been others. Um, i tell you, uh, former mayor, uh, Congressman Hel Dobb, uh, I criticized him a lot. And he was always so good-natured about it and wanted the originals, and we joked around about it. And he said, you're doing your job, you know, and you're keeping me on my toes. And Bob Kerry as well, uh, former governor, former U.S. senator, has, has said that to me, that um, it was all fair and, and uh, that, I, that I, he didn't feel attacked. He felt, yeah, I was criticizing him, and he thought it was, uh, it was fair and legitimate, and, uh, we're, you know, we're friends. Uh, he's actually a patron. Oh, wow. That's yeah. great. Well, it's kind of scary when there's people who are elected who can't take criticism or don't think that's at least a normal part of the job, right? Exactly. Right, exactly. If you're going to put yourself in the in the public realm, you should you should set your you should expect that. Absolutely. Do you think that our tolerance for satire culturally has gone down with some of those problems we have about our bubbles and our worlds? I mean, I I think so, but you referenced John Stewart and I mean there are plenty of comedians and late night talk show hosts who are doing satire. On the other hand, if you hear if you listen to someone even like Jerry Seinfeld who has stopped performing on I think this is still the case, I mean stopped performing on college campuses, but I mean there are a lot of comedians who feel like they can't do their act as they would have, but also there are a lot of late night comedians who are doing you know basically uh, you know, the equivalent of political cartoons, basically. So I don't know. I, I, you know, I again, what I see happening in other parts of the world and, you know, say in France, it's it's really night and day, the kind of things that they're drawing. Conversely, um, I have a cartoonist friend um, in a uh, country in the Middle East, uh, and uh, I'm even hesitant to, to – I won't say who he is, but I mean, he's been arrested multiple times for – Nothing, a, a, a vague religious reference maybe, and has been put on trial. And uh, it's so, you know, there are these extremes uh, out there. But again, the French cartoonists, <laughs> they're doing things that I go to these exhibits, I go to these salons, and uh, well, maybe, you know, not during a pandemic, but, um, you know, we have these exhibits uh, with the, the, the Americans who are there, the four or five of us. And we have our cartoons on display and we're proud of them. And everybody's like, oh, these are great, you know. And and uh, and then you look at the, the cartoonists, the cartoons from France and other parts of Europe. And it's like, wow. And there are school kids coming through and no one bats an eye. No one is offended. And uh, there, there are things that they're doing in these cartoons that, again, would never in a million years appear in, a, in, a, in an American newspaper, for better and for worse. But, yeah. But so, I mean, at the same time, you kind of got – there aren't – the political cartoon seems like maybe its heyday is not something that's still going on right now. But, I mean, it also speaks to the fact that there is a power to it, right? There's a power to the medium, whether it's just satire in general, an extension of that, or there's something unique about it. De- definitely. And, you know, the heyday, though, is it – yeah. You know, I, when I was still working at the local paper, I was one of only 20-something full-time newspaper cartoonists left in America. Oh, wow. Okay. And I really thought that, oh, maybe this is like a reality show and I'm going to be last cartoonist standing. <laughs> and uh, I actually had, uh, for longevity, I think the second longest time at a single paper in the country. Very proud of that. 
you know, most newspapers do not have a cartoonist, obviously. It's unfortunate because the very thing that cartoonists do, it's the very unique thing that brings readers to newspapers, and newspapers are hemorrhaging and need readers. And if you're going to just keep putting out the same old thing over and over and over again and not make it interesting and compelling, people will stop reading. What can you do? One of the things you can do, you can have a cartoonist drawing for your paper, drawing about local issues, drawing about national issues from a Midwestern point of view if you happen to be in Omaha. The very thing that you can do to bring readers in, you're getting rid of that thing. And But I also think it's it's looked at as a frosting on the cake, as a fringe benefit, as an extra thing, and not recognizing the importance of it to readers. That the, That's a way to connect with readers. And also, I think editors and publishers are, in general, squeamish of the power of a cartoon. You know, they, they, they're afraid to say things. They're afraid to take a stance. Um, I'm a big believer that one should take a stance on something, even if, even if you're on the losing side, but if you know it's the right thing to do. And they're squeamish and they're afraid, and they don't want to have to take phone calls from the mayor or the governor or any politician, and they don't want to have to deal with it. And I think there's a lot of fear, and especially in the last couple of years, that that aspect of it has really you know reared its its head. And that's not just that's not just you know in the Midwest; it's really kind of across the board with some you know clear exceptions to that rule. But I think in general, you know, most smaller to mid-sized newspapers. Uh, just don't have the stomach for dealing with angry readers, you know, and politicians and all of that and cancel cancellations of subscriptions, what few, you know, the, the few they have. Well, that's a good diagnosis of some really big problems that I don't know if you can really dig your way out of those holes, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know either. And hopefully, you know, cartooning maintains, you know, uh, f- uh, some format. I mean, obviously I'm doing it, you know, in the way I'm doing it. And I do still run in, in uh, like I said, 800 other papers, but... I don't know what the future holds for cartooning. I don't know. Is it all just video? Is it all just, you know, late night talk shows? Is it me telepathically, you know, sending you my ideas in the middle of the night and you wake up and you say, that was a funny dream. That's a good point. That Katerva, boy, dream tuning, the next thing. I'm talking today with political cartoonist Jeffrey Katerba. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Post with the hashtag Riverside Chats. We'll continue my conversation with Jeffrey Katerba after this break. My parents were what you'd call wandering souls. I must have lived in a half dozen places before I was two years old. But eventually, my family wandered into this little sawmill town called Walden in northern Colorado. My mom says the town was really kind of hip back then. She'd put me and my brother in a little red wagon and pull us downtown. When we moved there in 74, there was a lot going on. There was um, an art supply store. There was a health food store. There was a hardware store right on Main Street. I remember the... uh ice cream parlor and toy store. Yeah, and and your dad immediately started playing music with the rhythm wrestlers. The town welcomed us in, and for the first time, we settled down. But by the time I went to college, Walden was changing, fast. The town mayor, Jim Dustin, describes what happened. It used to have a sawmill, it used to have a uh, coal mine. It used to have a railroad. 
All those things went away. And even a recent fracking boom didn't revive things. And now my hometown has shrunk to nearly half as many people as when I was a kid. I wondered, just how small can a town shrink before it just disappears? From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. Jeffrey Katerba has been creating popular satire through political cartoons for over 30 years. He worked at the Omaha World Herald and has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and USA Today. He currently has a Patreon page where you can contribute directly to his latest work at patreon.com slash Jeffrey Katerba. Here's the rest of our conversation. What, what kept you in Omaha all these years? Uh, I've been here forever except for a couple of years when I lived in Austria and I was actually, um, it was an amazing thing because I was able to draw uh, for the local paper from the Alps with the time difference. Uh, it, w- it, w- it was amazing because I had this, I felt like I had an extra seven hours, but it was fascinating to draw about Omaha topics in Nebraska from the perspective of Europe. Uh, that was fascinating. But, uh, you know, I'm from here, uh, family, friends. Um, honestly, uh, it's number one, the people. And and number two, I kind of feel like um, there's so many cool things going on um, in this city. It's sort of becoming the city uh, and has been for a while, the city that I've dreamed that it could one day be. And, um, you know, the cultural, uh, options are endless. Really. There's so much, there's so much to do. Anyone who says there's nothing to do in Omaha, you're not really trying very hard. Uh, but again, it goes beyond, you know, activities and things like that. And it really is, uh, the relationships and the people here, uh, that are just dear, near and dear to my heart. I'm curious, when you were in Europe and you were thinking about Omaha, Uh you had the distance. Uh How did that change your relationship with Omaha or Uh your view of what was happening? Love it. Love it. Well, I mean, first of all, you're in Europe and you're in, uh, in, uh, you know, in in Austria where uh, uh, the, 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 well, I was working for the paper, so I was on their schedule, but everyone in Austria only works like four and a half days and it's, it's basically illegal to like check your email. Um, the, you know, the, 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 the cleanliness of the city was, was of Innsbruck was interesting, but looking at it from the political, uh, points of view that I was intaking. So I was consuming a lot of local news, European news, uh, became addicted to, uh, BBC world news. Um, and I think it just, I think it, I don't know in specifics how it shifted my perspective, but, uh, I don't know, like local, local issues, seemed um, kind of small and kind of like, really? People in Omaha are getting that upset over that thing? Really? I mean, and this is at the beginning of the Syrian refugee crisis, and I was going to Italy quite a bit, and I was on, I was on these trains heading back to Austria that were the trains heading to Germany, and you had all, of these, all these refugees there that were you know, exhausted, absolutely exhausted, and they'd bought a, a fraudulent ticket from, from somebody, 
And uh, they were, you know, being rounded up by the Italian government in a kind way, but they were being rounded up and taken off the train, of course, and processed and taken somewhere, uh, you know, and hopefully treated with humanity. But I'm seeing that I'm sitting there with them and I'm trying to think of these cartoon ideas about some really small, petty thing that's happening in Omaha. And I just I, I, I just thought, really, you're, you're being that overly sensitive over this one small thing. Come on. Come on. The world's bigger. And it and travel does that for you. Learning a language builds empathy. And when you see the world in a bigger, broader way, um, it puts things into perspective. And maybe you shouldn't be so upset about that thing that isn't really that big a deal. Well, in satire has that element where you have to be able to be critical but also sort of have a belief like that things can improve, mm-hmm. that the perspective that you're bringing can maybe change somebody's mind or broaden it in some way. And so, I mean, like in a situation like that, I imagine at some point it's hard to figure out, like, how do I make this dumb Omaha thing funny when there are real <laughs> problems? And just I, I just want to give up on Omaha sometimes, I imagine. <laughs> that must have at least crossed your mind. Uh, yeah, no, 100 uh, percent. I think just the physical distance gave me some emotional distance. And I was looking at Omaha and I certainly I was drawing national, international cartoons, too. But especially the local stuff, it gave me the distance and perspective uh, that I actually think it allowed me to be a little bit funnier and cl- more clever and maybe a bit more irreverent because I could see it for what it was that it was. Not that there weren't important things going on. Certainly there were, but I'm talking about, and I don't have any specific examples, but things that just seemed like, come on, really, we're you're arguing about this thing. Um, but you also said something else about, you know, the hope, the hope that things can change. In the same way that I... I I believe I bring humanity to my work. I, I also have hope that things will somehow work out. In spite of the things that I draw and say, I still believe in people, and I believe that people at their core uh, are good and well-intentioned, even if they believe something that I don't think is accurate or true. But also, there were times when I wanted to just say, you know, so I, I, lived, in, I lived in Innsbruck, in, in the Alps, and it's a beautiful city. And I just read uh, yesterday that they are going to ban all cars in the old town and in the downtown area at completely. So if you were to do that in Omaha, if you were to say, like, I would love in the old market to, to block off a couple of the streets and just make it pedestrian only, bring more tables and chairs outdoors, just have people walking around, sitting on benches. But uh, unfortunately, the merchants would not like it. Uh, with all due respect to them, because they would say, well, people in Omaha want to be able to drive to the front door and get out and go in and drive in their car and go back out. They don't want to have to walk very far. Well, uh, conversely, in Innsbruck, they're saying that actually they think it's going to improve foot traffic by for other businesses. So you, you're rather than driving to the establishment, getting out and going there and getting in your car and leaving, you're going to walk around and you might visit other businesses and other establishments. And then they say, well, what do we do with all those cars that are going to park there? They're going to be crammed into these other neighborhoods outside of this periphery. But no, they're going to build underground parking lots. There, there's not a single above ground parking lot in Innsbruck. And they're going to build them underground. And it can, they're going to keep it beautiful. Can you imagine if in Omaha we built all underground parking? We didn't have these towers of parking garages and didn't have car like I'm fine. Great. Drive your car. But like, let's let's really embrace pedestrian culture and bring us back to, 
you know, being more hum- human with each other, humane and having conversations and, and, and uh, you know, meeting people from other cultures and other places and, and having those kinds of experiences. I, I get the sense that Omaha doesn't like change that much. It sort of fights it until eventually it happens. Yeah, exactly. Like with bike, biking culture. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Yep, you're right. Yep. And you're, but so like political cartoons are a way for you to try to influence that, to move that dial. I don't know if I have any influence on anything, honestly. I really don't. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that I, I, I don't think I'm going to change anybody's mind. I just want to say, hey, here's a different perspective, you know, or, um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't like the echo chamber nature of politics. Um, and I don't, I don't care for it when my cartoons are used in that way. Like, hey, here's a guy that, you know, saying, I mean, that's fine. He's saying what we're, we've been saying, but, uh, I just don't, uh, you know, identify with. I'm a registered independent. I'm a passionate centrist. Uh, I just don't think that there's any one total truth. But I, got, I guess I kind of got off the point there. But that's the way my brain works. But I don't think I'm changing anybody's mind. Be cool to think that I had that kind of power. Um, I do know there, there were a couple of times at the local paper I drew cartoons about a particular legislative issue, which can be terribly boring and not interesting to the average person maybe but i had come up with this uh character and i you know i don't remember the details of it but uh my schmedley character whatever but he was referenced a few times on the floor of the legislature and and uh documented uh in 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 the uh, daily uh reporting uh from the floor of the legislature so those kinds of things are kind of cool but, I mean, you've been doing satire. I mean, surely you believe that there's some chance that what you're doing is getting into people's brains and having an impact. And maybe you're not personally going to be – like, they're not going to call it – you know, they're not going to, like, necessarily name a lot of things after you or your uh, your, mm. your cartoons. Maybe they I don't, should. Sure, they should. But, you know, I don't know if that's your goal so much. But I, I, I don't know that I buy that you don't think you're making an impact. Well, I appreciate that. I, and I'm not – it's not some false humility, honestly. I'm not – but I I don't – like, you know what, maybe – you know what, maybe uh, – yeah, maybe uh, 10 years ago, uh, especially locally, uh, you know, when it comes to, to, to city issues and some state issues, yeah, I, I think that I – and I know that there have been times when people have said, hey, you know, that cartoon, you know, really – you know, we brought this up at a meeting and we got to thinking about this particular issue differently. Uh, you know, and I know that, you know, the you know mayors and city council people and, and state legislators and, and uh, you know, congressmen and senators reading my stuff and reacting to it. So, yeah, OK, so sure. But I, I don't know if now like I just everything just feels so, so, so divided and yeah. so entrenched. So I don't know. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with political cartoonist Jeffrey Katerba. Just the fact that you're being your stuff is being looked at by people of different political persuasions is kind of an accomplishment right now. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. And yeah, and I, I get accused, uh, you know, and this has always happened where where I'll get an email back when people actually called people on a regular phone. I'd get voicemail, and and they would say, "You, you know, you are clearly so." They would use all kinds of foul language, and you conservative, blah, 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 blah. And then the next call, you liberal, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Sometimes over the same cartoon. <laughs> like, is this a joke? And emails like that too. And uh, people thinking, oh, I know, I know who, I know what he is. I know who he is. Well, no, 
<laughs> I, I'm still trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> well, so, okay, there are a couple of things I do want to bring up before we run out of time here because I was looking at your website and I saw there was a story about being struck by lightning and there was something about UFOs. True on both counts. Uh, I was a kid. uh, In fact, uh, if I can say this, I I have uh, some work at the Pottawatomie Arts Cultural uh, uh, Center, uh, Arts Cultural Entertainment Center in Council Bluffs. And the theme is storms. And I have uh, some paintings, but also a sculpture uh, inspired by the lightning strike, which happened in South Omaha. I was 17, watching a storm. My dad kept telling me to come inside. I I was stubborn. Uh, You know, I wanted to watch Mother Nature's Light Show, man, or whatever. And next thing I know, I'm hit, I'm down, um, I'm on the ground, I'm having a near-death experience. It was very peaceful, uh, by the way. But I kept thinking, oh, uh, I couldn't move. I was, I just, I couldn't move. And I wanted to get inside the house to die inside. Long story, made it to the front porch. It seemed like hours, it was probably just a few seconds. My mom and dad come out to grab me. My mom is shouting, oh my gosh, you know, we need to take him to the hospital. And my dad said... We'll just give him some Jack Daniels. True story. So I'm sitting there. My dad's pouring JD down my throat. My four younger siblings are staring at me. I can't talk from the lightning. And now I have JD, you know, dripping down my chin. And then uh, Standing Bear Lake, uh, many years ago, uh, I encountered uh, with a friend after uh, 10 o'clock at night, uh, a massive, uh, massive triangle, uh, a triangle that hovered over the car, made not a sound and, and, uh, and sped off into the night and uh that was interesting um i wish i'd asked about these separately because these are kind of two big well divergent we topics talk about it again sometime <laughs> well like i want to ask you quickly about the lightning so did that having that kind of near-death experience at a young age was that freeing in some way because you're on you know sort of like you thought it was over and now you have mm. a chance to live you know, and one of the things that I, I, I sort of not overtly address in this sculpture, but like the different pathways I could have taken, that was right before my senior year of high school. And I was debating whether I would uh, leave high school to become a, to go to the seminary and finish high school there and become a Catholic priest or become a cartoonist. And, um, and uh, it took some, it took a while uh, and that was actually the first, it was just a month later that I drew my first uh, actual political cartoon for the Omaha South High Tutor. It had to do with uh, nuclear energy or no, no, no. It had to do with, a, oh my gosh, a Ford Pinto. Back in the day, hey kids, back in the day, Ford Pintos blew up. And then there were these Firestone tires that were blowing up. And so I drew a cartoon about a Ford Pinto with exploding tires. But um, so I guess that kind of determined it. But uh, I don't know if it freed me up. Um, uh, it freaked me out. And um uh, but it's it's kind of liberating. I don't know. It's kind of liberating to know that um, it was peaceful. Um, and I did kind of feel like, I guess, that like, oh, like, wow, uh, I can do anything I want to do. I can become a priest or I can become a cartoonist. So do you mean, do you interpret that as a sign from on high telling you actually do this? Don't don't take the safe route or, uh, you know, do the do the passion uh, kind Kind of, actually, kind of. And, and and even watching that storm, like, I'm shy and I'm scared, honestly, of most things, to be honest with you. I front a swing band. I play music in front of people. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I don't want to be – I don't. I, I'm nervous. I have anxiety. But yet, I, for whatever reason, I throw myself into these situations, including, in, like, looking up into the sky and saying, I, I'm going to watch this storm and – 
yeah, I might get hit by lightning, but I'm going to embrace it. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> don't recommend it. So do you feel like there's uh, some some energy out there looking out for you? Uh, maybe it was the, the people and the, the creatures and the the UFO. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I do feel, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like a, I feel a connection to my uh, to my uncle and uh, uh, whom I've never met. Uh, certainly uh, and to my dad, a musician and a creative. Um, you know, I do feel like uh, ideas, uh, create creative ideas. I believe that we are all creative in some way and more, uh, you know, obviously than others. But uh, I do believe there are forces in the universe, whether it's God or the universe or just energy. And I think those are accessible to all of us. And it's beautiful and wonderful. And if we would all just stop obsessing over fake news and social media and we could tap into that a little bit more i don't know you know we'd be better off but i do feel like there's energy uh, around us and a good and a beautiful beautiful wonderful things in 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 the universe that are right there right at our fingertips well i'm glad we were able to find a positive note to end on because we were this was pretty much a downer until the oh, last five no, minutes here i think not, it's not your fault it's my fault i'm always like things are bad right and people say yeah, uh, yeah they, but they uh, kind of are yeah. <laughs> but maybe there's somebody looking out maybe maybe it'll be okay i don't know i i have coincidences like i don't know about you like absolutely unexplainable coincidences and uh I kind of feel like somebody described those as little winks from God. I, maybe I don't know, but I, I like those kinds of things and the unexplainable and these moments, these unexplainable moments that happen randomly. If you're being aware, a, a child smiling at the precise moment that uh, you see, you know, the first raindrops of a storm, and I, this sounds cheesy, but you know, and it, at that moment, a car drives by, and there's some song on the radio, and like this alignment, the universe, in that moment, and you're the only one, and a shadow falls just the right way on the sidewalk on a tree, and you're the only one in that very moment experiencing that, and it's absolutely beautiful. I think this is a good note for us to end on right here. <laughs> I tried. This is great. Yeah, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're very welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.